never met my grandma Rosemary, but I think about her often. Over the years, I've learned some simple facts about this woman from another era. She was a mother to my mom and eight others. She tended an orchard and a commercial chicken operation. She was funny, smart, and deeply religious. She grew up without running water or indoor plumbing, and she didn't make it past the eighth grade. And she worked really, really hard. My grandfather tended the fields while she raised kids, baked, mended, quilted, milked the cows, fixed things that were broken. My own mother didn't want much to do with that life when she left it, but I've always been intrigued by it. There's a romanticism in the idea of homesteading, doing without, providing for yourself, of building a little cabin in the woods and having a garden and maybe some animals, but the reality isn't quite so rosy. It's downright difficult and clumsy, especially when you have no idea what you're doing. When I moved to McCarthy, my mom wondered what Grandma Rosemary would have thought. I think she either would have been proud, or thought I was crazy, or likely a little bit of both, actually. She certainly didn't shun technology. She was ecstatic when she got her first microwave, for example, and she didn't exactly choose her lifestyle, but it did seem to come naturally to her. I try to channel her skill and work ethic, but most of the time, I just wander. You're listening to season two of Out Here, and I'm Erin McKinstry. On episode five, Homesteading. mid-1900s, there was a surge of people heading north to claim land through the Federal Homestead Act. If people built a habitable dwelling and lived on their property year-round for three years, they got the land for free. Here's Ina Jones, who homesteads with her husband Speck outside of Homer, Alaska. So it provided people moving to Alaska at that time a way to acquire a piece of property through the work of their hands, and it also kind of taught a stewardship because you couldn't just come in, hang out for the summer in a tent and go home to Seattle for the winter and then come back in the summer. That way then they knew that the people that settled Alaska in the early days actually had a desire to be here long term. McCarthy and the surrounding area has its own history of homesteading and small-scale farming. When the miners poured in in the early 1900s, homesteaders came too. I try to imagine the small farms that once operated in my neighborhood when I'm driving down our road surrounded by forested lots. Some of those used to be fields. But nowadays, there's a lot less of that going on. It's easier to get in and out for supplies, and Costco's often a more affordable and less time-consuming option. You can spend your time homesteading so you don't have to buy as much stuff from the outside, or you can spend your time working so you have more money to buy stuff from the outside. Most people choose the latter. Still, there are a few people making a go of it, like Tenley Nelson, who homesteads in the neighboring community of Strelna, about 50 miles away. We were super, super poor when I moved here. We had no money, but yet we could grow fresh, really good food. The last homesteading claim was processed in 1986. 
And things have changed a lot since then, Tenley says. That generation has started to die out and those homesteads have been subdivided. And there's a lot more of people with little cabins instead of that homesteading mentality of growing all your own stuff. So it's opened up a market. There's a lot of people that aren't providing for themselves, but because of all the media about organic foods and stuff, there's an interest and a a demand for it now. So Tenley isn't just growing food for her family. She's also selling some of her produce to cover her operating costs. On this episode, we'll touch on an important piece of agriculture in Alaska, the legacy of homesteading and how it's changed with the times. The harsh climate, extra expenses, and nutrient-lacking soils means some of that is a lot harder than it was for my grandma Rosemary back in the Midwest. On episode five, we'll meet two women who've proved up for the challenge. We'll talk about climate change, subsistence, peonies, land access, and so much more. Stay tuned. You're listening to Out Here, and I'm Erin McKinstry. Tenley Nelson carries a watering can down her driveway. She's wearing a brown Carhartt jacket and tall rubber boots, and her long brown hair is tucked under a sock cap. It's October, and it's finally starting to get chilly after a dry, hot summer. A handful of turkeys walk toward us, looking curious. Hi, guys. But these guys are um, bourbon reds, so they grow a lot slower. Uh-huh. Tenley changes out the water for the chickens, one of many, many chores that fill her days here. They flutter around an old camper shell that she's turned into temporary summer housing. This was supposed to be temporary housing that turned into an all-summer housing. Next to the chicken coop, Tenley's fenced garden plot looks pretty much done for the year. The last holdout kale froze a few nights ago. Now, it's just a few rows of cover crops and mulched garlic she's hoping to overwinter. The garlic's one of her many experiments that she's seen success with over the years. She says so much of gardening and farming out here is just trying it. Try everything and keep trying everything, even when people tell you you can't do that here. Because especially as it gets warmer, like everybody told me I can't grow green beans here. Well, I grew more green beans than I could eat or sell or put up this summer under a low tunnel in the uh, garden this year. And partly that's because it's been getting warmer and we had a really hot year, but partly it's because I just did it. Tenley's been growing things for about 16 years on this property, but her journey into farming and homesteading began when she was a kid. I mean, we grew up on five acres um, on the coast of Maine. We always had a vegetable garden. Um, We always had a big yard. We always picked berries when we sailed down east, you know, so we were kind of on a much smaller scale, always doing a lot of the stuff that I do now uh, for fun. I definitely have the same story as a million other bloggers out there with their Laura Ingalls Wilder. Like, oh, I read those books growing up and I wanted to live that way and that huge connection there. I think I first worked on a farm when I was 18. I went to school in Greece on Crete and worked on some farms there as part of my internship and then 
um, got a job as a farm laborer on Tuttle's family farm, which used to be, it's closed down now, it used to be the oldest family farm in America, in New Hampshire. And uh, so that was my first farm job, and I just have never stopped. I mean, I've worked all over the world on farms. I don't know, I have this, um, just this innate compulsion to garden. Like, I mean, I just can't not garden. I remember when my kids were really little, my mom said, you're just really stressed out and you have little babies and you know, you just need to like, just stop gardening. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> no, 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 like that's not gonna happen. So um, growing things is really important to me. It's just part of, part of who I am, my makeup. Over the years, Tenley has turned her dream to homestead into a reality. Part of it is practical. She and her family live really far from good, fresh produce. We live 250 miles from the nearest large grocery store, and we were super, super poor when I moved here. We had no money, but yet we could grow fresh, really good food, and so it was about providing food that we couldn't, it just wasn't available. We couldn't drive anywhere in a couple hours and buy food that way. So that's why we bought it, you know, started growing it ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and there weren't any farmer's markets back in 2003 when I moved here. So uh, this was, it was, you either grew it or you didn't have it. But part of it is steeped in concerns about sustainability, food security, and nutrition. It's important for us to not be barging so much food up here. I mean, I think it's ridiculous when we can produce so much food in a, in a small space that to be having it shipped up, it's just, you know, it, that's, I mean, that's kind of a whole nother can of worms with the whole large agriculture and picking stuff before it's ready so that it can be shipped and hold for weeks in the store. I just feel that local produce is being picked at its prime and you're getting all the benefits of that when you eat it. Henley and her family live on property that was homesteaded by her husband's grandparents. But the lifestyle that she and her family lead is different from those that came before them. Her husband, Tim, leaves for the summer to run a big game hunting business. They have internet and a toilet. I kind of always call our lifestyle a hybrid lifestyle because we've got definitely have like one foot in the whole modern technology you know we've had internet here since 2004 uh, and then at the same time we have a, a trophy hunting business big game guiding um, which is how we make our income and then uh, we grow as much food as we can and we're working towards um, being able to store it with the root cellar and being able to have all of that year round uh, versus like eight months of the year which is what we've got right now and then everything else has to be canned or frozen and then doing the subsistence hunting you know which is something that tim's does primarily and and is teaching our kids how to do they go caribou hunting every year and they've got big plans to put up a bunch of uh snowshoe hares before the snow all comes on and salmon of course woodfrog farm started in 2016 before that denley pretty much just grew food for herself and friends and neighbors sometimes she has a hard time selling things mostly because she just wants to give everything extra away. She doesn't like dealing with money. But also because she's far from a population center and farmer's market. This year, she did make enough to cover her costs. 
that was really exciting to kind of hit that because that's been the goal is to just basically break even. So yes, I'm still putting all the labor in, but the food isn't costing us anything to produce it for us. And it's obviously really expensive to do anything out here. (laughs) So it's really nice to provide all the food that we need to eat fresh food wise um, and not have it cost us anything other than effort. Next up, we'll hear Tenley's thoughts on how climate change is impacting her farm. If you wanted to talk about climate change, I can show you my big climate change debacle right out in the yard. Oh, sure. Tenley lifts up a black plastic pot. So these pots all had peppers in them Uh in the greenhouse during the summer. Stuck to the underside of the soil inside are tiny clear balls. When I dumped them out, I actually dumped these all out by the compost, I noticed all these eggs and I had never seen anything like them before. I didn't know what they were. I had to do some research and turns out they're slug eggs. Before this year, Tenley had never had them in her garden. Usually it gets too cold here for them to survive the winter. But as winters grow milder, that may no longer be the case. Oh, right, here's one. Inside her greenhouse, I find the tiny pests munching away on her late-season lettuce. <laughs> he Let's see, if I leave him alone, maybe he'll stick his little oh, yeah. oh, eye stalks out. And they're kind of cute. Too bad they wreak so much havoc. This is just one of the ways that things are changing around here. And so far... Tenley says it's one of the few negative impacts the farm has seen from a changing climate. When you look in terms of like trying to grow more food in Alaska, we're going to just be able to increase the amount of food we can produce with warmer temperatures. So if we want to really focus on feeding who we have here now, there are benefits. A lot of the negative impact, she says, has actually been in the winter months. More ice and rain and less snow, warmer winters and longer falls. For us, where we get upset about climate change, it really is all about the impact of the winter months and how that's changed our life. And that's much more our subsistence lifestyle, our trapping, our, you know, it's affecting us hugely in that avenue. Like we haven't been able to trap the Chitna River for three years now because the river keeps blowing out. What she finds most frustrating is the unstableness of the weather. Too much rain, then no rain at all. Too hot. The unknown and the unpredictable are part of farming anywhere. So she's just trying to use the knowledge she already has to adapt and survive. Nobody seems to have the answers like what can we do to make our gardens more, you know, able to handle inclement weather. And primarily, I guess what I think the answer is, is that it's all the kind of standard sustainable organic practices. It's like if you have soil that has a healthy soil biome, they'll adjust their levels to the weather or what they need or, you know, what happens. And then having a lot of organic matter in your soil so you can handle a lot of rain or you can handle a lot of dry. Next up, 
we'll travel to Homer at the end of the road on the beautiful Kenai Peninsula. There, we'll meet peony farmer and homesteader Ina Jones and her husband Speck. Peony farming is a relatively new industry in Alaska. Alaska kind of has its niche when peonies bloom in July and August when they're not blooming anywhere else. Ina is part of one of the many small farms that's participating in an effort to make peony growing in Alaska well-known around the country and the world. It's a pretty neat story. Here goes. My name is Ina Jones. I'm the wife of Speck Jones, and we've raised our family on this property. Originally, my husband's family is a homestead family, as is mine. So my family homesteaded in the Anchor Point area in 1948. And at those times, it was homestead where you proved up on the land after three years, you got a title. And my husband's family homesteaded out here in 1956. They came from Texas and uh, started one of the first cattle ranches on the peninsula at that time. This was totally isolated out here at the time. There was no roads. The road didn't get put out here from Homer until 1970. So was it fly-in only? Uh, no, it was backpack. Oh. You put your backpack on your back and you headed down the beach. So by the time I got married, moved out here in 72, a lot of, a lot of that switchback trail was basically one horse trail wide. You couldn't even ride two horses alongside on part of it or they'd bump and you'd fall over the cliff, which that's happened a couple of times. But anyway, um, <laughs> at least no one was on the one that got bumped over the cliff, right? I got married and I was 16, my husband was 21. And um, that's all he wanted to do was farm and work the land and pretty much that's what we've tried to do. You know, sometimes you have to take an outside job to make ends meet, but uh, you always come back to this. Farming, we've just kind of morphed into doing whatever it takes, you know, when you're in Alaska and if you don't have a nine to five job, you just wear different kinds of hats to do, you know, whatever it takes to make a living. We'd been told by several people, you really should try growing peonies. You really should. You're doing everything else. You need to do that. And I, finally, I let them talk us into it. <laughs> it was discovered by Pat Halloway that Alaska has fresh peonies in July and August when other countries do not. You can still buy peonies from other countries, but they bloomed out earlier, and they've been held in the cooler for many, many weeks, and so they're not fresh. So here was this little niche, and that's what she started, and it's grown from that, and uh, I think Alaska has over 200 peony farms now. So we added the peonies about six years ago, and thought that would be something to add to putting up hay for the cows and horses, and uh, I'm hoping it's going to be a long-term thing. Um, I see a lot of future in it. It's pretty intense. It doesn't take a lot of property to grow peonies. Um, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. You plant them and you don't get any return for about three or four years because you have to let the plants develop before they're commercially viable. But um, we're up, we're running, and I'll let you know in 10 years how it's going. What do you like about growing flowers? Um, they just make me happy. I don't know. Just talk to them all the time. 
you know, in the springtime when the snow melts, I'm down here looking for their little pink noses to start coming up through the soil and kind of do a little happy dance and celebrate them waking up and getting going. And I've always been in love with cows and horses and farming. I just was born with it, I guess, because this is just where I wanted to be. Ina leads me into a building that's part of the calf barn in the winter. In the summer, it houses a peony processing frenzy. Five-gallon buckets filled with green stems and a few discarded buds litter the floor. But this is yeah. where we processed them. We would bring them in, we'd cut them. We have to cut them to a graded length, either 16 or 20-inch stems. Then we would grade per bud size. Hold that right there for a minute. Then we head inside the cooler. Bouquets of delicate white and pink peonies line the wooden shelves. These will be sold locally. In late July of 2019, most of the harvest and shipping is already done for the summer. Processing was a mad dash. Normally, Ina's different varieties of peonies bloom over a six to seven week period. But the weather was so hot in the summer of 2019 that they all bloomed at once. So when they're coming on, you're running. (laughs) You're running buckets of flowers for the cooler. So how many people does it take? Do you have people that you've hired to help you? Nope, it's pretty much all done with family. My granddaughters, my daughter, my daughter-in-law, even my husband. When the flowers were coming off as hard as they were this year, everybody had a job. (laughs) We head outside to meet some of that family, including Ina's husband, Speck. Hi, I'm Aaron. Aaron? Yeah. I'm Speck. Nice to meet you. This place is pretty idyllic. Peaks nestled with hanging glaciers tower across Kachemek Bay. Really does look like a postcard. Speck leans against a forest green four-wheeler. Ina perches on the seat while we chat. When mom and dad came here in the, in the late 50s, well, there was not a lot of work. If you, if you weren't in the fishing industry, you know, there, there was not much else in the way of jobs. Uh, Homer had 400 people. How many people does it take to into the, the roads, you know, <laughs> very few. And so there wasn't, wasn't a lot of jobs. So they had a farming background from, uh, from down south where they moved up here. Both of them were from farming country. And so it was just kind of natural for them whenever they came here to get into the farming end of things. And they grew big gardens and stuff, but Dad was mostly interested in raising beef, so that's uh, that's what he got into. And uh, so we grew up riding horses and chasing cows and fixing fences and putting up hay and <laughs> all that. Is it meaningful for you to be able to carry on a legacy of homesteading and farming in Alaska? Absolutely. That's the reason why we're still hanging in here and doing it. Because I don't think there's any lessons that can teach life lessons so well as raising critters and farming. Um, You learn the whole gambit of life's lessons on a farm. Life, death, birth, um, you know growing, nurturing, taking care of things, treating it with honor and love and respect. Even if you butcher a cow, you still treat that critter with the honor and respect. And you treat that meat with honor and respect whenever you butcher it. And um, 
that is something that we try to instill. We did it with our children and now our grandkids. And, you know, they don't run from the butcher block when it comes time to do something like that. But we treat it with care. The thing is, Bullspeck and Ina feel that when people want to get started homesteading and farming in Alaska, they face a lot more barriers than they used to. Say if I was a young couple coming up and wanted to buy five acres and maybe have a garden, maybe someday raise my kids on it and be there for a long time, maybe forever, and you'd be looking at a minimum of raw land at $10,000 an acre. So unless they're coming up here with money already in their pocket, it's not going to happen. And that's sad to me because we are rich in resources and we are rich in farmland and we're not taking advantage of that as a state. And I think it's a crime. The people that set aside this park, they're looking at, well, it's pretty. It's too pretty for anyone to live on. We don't want to mess it up with people living on it. And I kind of understand that sentiment to, uh, to a degree. But on the other side, my other half is going, but why shouldn't a family that's moving up from the States have the opportunities that we inherited from our parents? If you're looking to buy a piece of property more than a half an acre at a time, good luck. Because it is not available. It's all been took up. Priced way too high for anybody that is interested in farming. And that's a problem, they say, not just because homesteading is woven into the fabric of recent Alaska history. People being able to produce their own food is also essential in an emergency. There, there are just a lot of benefits to being able to produce food in the area that you live in, in the local area. And if Alaska is kind of isolated from the rest of the nation, as far as uh, access up here, and if anything ever happened that shut down the Alaska Highway or or closed the airports or any major catastrophe that, that interrupted the transportation system, uh, the grocery stores would be out of groceries in like two or three days. Recently, there has been an explosion of high tunnels in Homer thanks in part to a USDA program that helps people install them. And that is encouraging, Ina says. You know, all summer long, people selling, you know, their food, it's healthier, it's better for you. A lot of, you know, when they have their farmer's market here on Wednesdays and Saturdays, I've heard complaints from the people that run the grocery stores. They don't even sell any produce during those days because everybody in Homer goes to the farmer's market, you know, and why would they not? It's fresh and it comes off of local farms and... So there's huge support for that. It's all, uh, it's a good lifestyle, you know, it's a, but it's not for everybody. You know, a lot of people try it and quit after a few years, you know. You're not gonna get uh, rich. You're not going to get rich. If you're in it for the money, you're in it for the wrong reason. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Out Here, a podcast about life in rural Alaska. Before we go, I wanted to acknowledge something. When homesteaders moved north following the Homestead Act, it wasn't as if no one came before them. Diverse groups of Alaska Native peoples have lived off the land in this state for thousands of years. Many of the subsistence activities that all Alaskans benefit from today are rooted in Native traditions. Sorry it's taken so long to get this episode out there in the world. The pandemic and life changes have made it difficult to carve out the time. But there is at least one more episode in the works for season two. On it, we'll meet two farmers getting creative to make fruit growing work in Alaska. I tell myself the years that I get a crop out of every fruit that I grow here, that's a good year. Thanks to Sam McKinstry, Paddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions for the music, Ian Giori for the artwork, and the Rasmussen Foundation for the funding. To listen to more episodes or view photos, head to www.outherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time. For Out Here, I'm Erin McKinstry.